Okay, we, we will probably have a few people joining us slightly late. That is the LSE way. But uh, nevertheless, I think it's probably a good idea to, to, to start off with proceedings. Uh, welcome to this uh, lecture this evening. Um, it's always a pleasure to, um, to chair events here. And it's a particular pleasure to uh, chair the uh, annual lecture by the um, visiting professor, the Gerda Henkel visiting professor, who is both a member of the the LSE History De International History Department and a member of the German Historical um, Institute in London. Um, Dominic Geppert, tonight's speaker, is the eighth of the visiting professors. Um, this event happens every year, but we alternate between uh, the GHIL and the LSE, so it's our turn to host this year, and it's great to uh, see uh, that you've all turned out at a very late point in the term, so I, I apologize for, for, get for getting in to the tail end of term. Um, tonight's speaker um, is, um, when not, uh, so he's spending the whole of the year at the GHIL and the LSE, but his base is at the University of Bonn, where he is the chair of modern history. Um, and he was previously at the universities of Berlin and Marburg, uh, but also has strong English connections, spent some time at Nuffield College, Oxford, I believe, as a student, or, and, then, uh, and then was at the German Historical Institute at the beginning, of the early years of this century, which was, I think, a time the time we first met. Um, he has done many things. I'm always envious of German colleagues who uh, have a spread of topics and a breadth of range that is far greater than that, which I can, uh, I can boast of. Uh, but his current project is a fascinating attempt to write the history of a divided Germany. But it's not really that that he's going to be talking about tonight. It's a slightly different topic. Um, and it's a fascinating but intriguing title, National Expectations and Transnational Infrastructure, the Media, Global News Coverage and International Relations in the Age of High Imperialism. So, Dominic, over to you. Yeah, thank you, Piers, for the kind uh, introduction. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, dear colleagues, liebe Frau Kühnen, it's a great honor and a pleasure for me to, to, to be here uh, and speak to you today as, uh, Gerda, as this year's Gerda Henkel Visiting Professor. It's a great pleasure, as Pierre said, because uh, it's for me an opportunity to come back in a way to a place where I spent five uh, really pleasant and fruitful years, both personally and, and, and professionally, um, uh, very rewarding years as a research fellow at the German Historical Institute then, and not least because I was able to write a book uh, about uh, a topic that has something to do which, uh, with, with what I'm going to talk to you today about. So it is good to be back at the GHIL, and I'm very grateful for the warm welcome I have uh, received there. Um, I'm also very grateful to the Gerda Henkel uh, Foundation, um, which in effect granted me a one-year writing scholarship after I had left the, the GHIL, and uh, who is now generously funding this visiting professorship with a fridge for, well, for German historians is a great opportunity to get out of the well, daily toil and work and uh, experience uh, a different research culture and, and get new kind of inspirations and, and ideas. Um, and I would also like to thank my new colleagues at the LSE for the way, the really cordial way they received me there. So what I experience at the moment is kind of a mixture of the, um, of the old and the new, the familiar and the yet unfamiliar. And this is why I thought it might be quite fitting to, uh, for today's lecture to revisit some of the material I collected for my book on the press wars, which I wrote like 10 years ago, uh, and confront it with more recent historiographical trends and findings. What I studied at the time was, uh, in a way, what you can see here, well, you see it on, on the bottom of the page, uh, the German press <laughs> fighting a, um, a British admiral, it's actually his first sea lord, Arthur Lee, and the, the British admiral fighting back with words instead of uh, really weapon, uh, weapons. So um, it's one example of how uh, the press affected bilateral British German relations in the years before the First World War. And one, one aspect that struck me when I uh, researched that book, and uh, which has become even clearer since, 
is that those press wars and the friction caused by the press uh, as an actor in international politics cannot actually aptly be described through, solely through a British-German bilateral lens. Um, so the paradigm of Anglo-German antagonism, which prevailed for quite a while, has been replaced by more multilateral modes of explanation with a more global reach. And within these new paradigms, the British and the German cases are only pieces in a bigger jigsaw puzzle. Part of the puzzle has to do with the scope and intensity of the media revolution at the turn from the 19th to the 20th century. It also concerns the relationship between politics and the media. And then yet another part of the story uh, focuses on the effects the media revolution had on the expectations of national audiences as well as on the build-up of global transnational infrastructures. In other words, on the connection between if you like, jingoism on the one hand and transnationalism on the other, between a dynamic nationalization, virulent nationalisms, and a growing global interdependence. Historians of globalization have argued convincingly that the two phenomena, nationalization and globalization, or transnationalization, if you like, should not merely be seen as uh, temporarily overlapping, um, uh, but rather as closely interrelated. And in this reading, the progress of globalization does not simply increase the frequency and ease with which national borders are crossed. Counterintuitively, these transnational interactions are also understood to have aided the formation and consolidation of those very boundaries. And seen in this light, nation states are not just the preconditions and protagonists of exchange, but in at least equal measure, the products of global circularization, as Sebastian Conrad has put it. It is not the nation state that ceases to exist. My German colleagues Isabella Löhr and Roland Wenzelhumer have recently stressed, but a certain perspective on the nation state, which can no longer, no longer be upheld. And then they proceed to ask a series of pertinent questions. How does the nation state fit into the interplay between globalization and fragmentation? How did the nation state and non-state actors handle problems with transnational reach? Who were the driving forces that either strengthened or slowed down processes of exchange and interconnection? Which aims and interests did the main acting groups pursue? Did international and organizational frameworks develop to standardize interactions across national borders? And how did the nation state states in the end react towards the flows of information, technology, knowledge, commodities, or capitals? What I would like, capital, what I would like uh, to do tonight is to give some tentative answers to these very big uh, questions by analyzing a small but not quite unimportant part of globalization, namely the foreign news uh, coverage within Europe's mass media between, say, the 1880s and the First World War. And I will, for doing that, I will concentrate uh, on uh, two, uh, on three different topics. The first topic uh, I will look at are European news agencies, such as Reuters in the UK, Wolfs Telegraphisches Bureau in uh, Germany, and the Agence Avas in uh, France. These are privately run concerns, and they function as intermediaries and re that retail political and economic news, not only to the press, but also to banks, to insurance companies, and to business people. The second topic is the new popular press, an expression of the profound transformation of the media in those uh, years, a transformation that had implications for the ownership, for the power structures, of the newspaper publishers and of the financial foundations of the press for the content and the tone of its reporting and for its relationship with politics. And the third topic on my list 
are the foreign correspondents whose very profession necessitates the crossing of borders uh, and frontiers and the mediation between different national audiences. And what I will do in this lecture is uh, I will first analyze the transnational uh, infrastructure, the transnationalization, if you like, um, of the media in those uh, years and ask whether this transnationalization was really global, already global in outlook. The second, second um, step will then be to look at the increasingly national bent uh, of um, news coverage um, within the context of uh, the commercialization of the press and the growing national orientation of foreign correspondents. And the third step, then um, the interaction, the interplay between those two processes, with which I will discuss using two case studies. One uh, is the international press congresses of the time, and the, th the second uh, one, the second case study, is the foreign press association that came up at that time. So let's start with the transnational infrastructure. It was technological innovations like the telegraph, later the telephone and the radio, that revolutionized the infrastructure of global communications in the second half of the 19th century. For the press, this revolution meant a drastic shortening of the period of time between an event and its reporting from weeks to days and later to hours or even minutes. The news of Napoleon's death um, on, uh, in May 1821 was reported in the London Times, what would you guess? Three days. A full full uh, two months after the event. <laughs> the news of the murder of Abraham Lincoln in 1865, that was the year before the first transatlantic cable was laid down, 12 days. And the uh, murder of um, James A. Garfield in 1881, that was after the transatlantic cable was in place and intact, a mere 24 hours. So you see how in the course of the 19th century um, the distances shrank and time accelerated. <coughs> a crucial aspect was the dominance of the British Empire over the global traffic in uh, communications. Towards the end of the 19th century, this dominance at least rivaled uh, Britain's maritime dominance, I would say. London was the uncontested news capital of the world, and Reuters, the leading British news agency, had a considerable competitive edge over its continental and North American competitors. The dominant position of uh, British companies in the international news and wire business was due not least to the fact that Britain, as the biggest world and trading power, had a particular interest in the expansion of telegraphy, with commercial um, uh, as well as military and strategic motives coming into play. Since the 1860s, Private companies such as this Eastern Telegraph Company had been busy laying down underwater cables connecting Europe, North America, India, and Africa. The following decades, so after the 1860s, saw the construction of additional connections with China, with South America, and Japan. The British government methodically connected uh, its colonies in Africa, in Asia, and the Pacific to the British mainland via overhead and submarine cables. And you see these red lines all over that map of the world. Reuters was, as I said, a main beneficiary of this uh, cable network. It collaborated with the two other big European news, news agencies, which I mentioned, uh, to the mutual benefit of all uh, concerned. They established exclusive areas of operation that largely mirrored the colonial empires and informal spheres of influence uh, of, of the respective powers, meaning Germany, France, and uh, Britain. 
In January 1870, Wolf's Telegraphist Bureau and Reuters, together with others, signed a cartel agreement in which each agency secured exclusive rights for itself. They also agreed to exchange news content for which the recipient would have to pay only the telegraph fee. This meant that Reuters could only offer its customers news content from Germany, which it had received directly from Wolfsbüro and vice versa. So Europe's great powers divided up large parts of the globe uh, in much the same way as they had uh, for, for the news business, in much the same way as they had for their uh, colonies. Reuters won exclusive rights in South Africa, in the Far East, and in the rest of the British Empire, as well as in the Netherlands, where they had bought up the main uh, Dutch um, news agency a while ago. Havas, and that included the Dutch colonies uh, in Southeast Asia as well. Havas received uh, the Romans-speaking part of the Mediterranean and France with its colonies. And Germany, Scandinavia, St. Petersburg, and Moscow went to Wolf's Telegraphist Bureau. The Ottoman Empire, Egypt, and Belgium were shared between Reuters and Avas, and all other regions, especially Switzerland, Austria-Hungary, and the Danubian principalities were neutral regions open to all three contracting parties without restrictions. Germany had comparatively few international business links, and this is why WTB, WTB was initially content merely to strengthen its dominant position in Central, Northern, and Eastern Europe, leaving almost all of the regions outside Europe to the French and British agencies. The only exceptions were the few German colonies acquired in the mid-1880s. In two additional agreements signed in 1874 and 1876, respectively, Reuters and Avast settled the distribution of their respective spheres of influence for the rest of the globe. China, Japan, and Constantinople went to Reuters, while Avast secured South America and all of the Mediterranean, with the exception of Greece and Egypt, which both parties agreed to share their exclusive use. In the journalistic sphere, these separate arrangements, one could say, anticipated by three decades the deal over colonial politics that was closed with the signing of the Entente Cordiale, uh, if not in all of its territorial details, but certainly in the thrust of the agreements. Uh, and one other point seems worth mentioning, perhaps. The allegedly global reach of the news agencies may have been an important element of their advertising strategy. They said, we cover the globe. But in effect, it was not an adequate description of their real operating range. You see here large parts of Africa, of Asia, and Latin America were blank areas with regard to both the appropriate telegraphic um, infrastructure and the network of local correspondence uh, necessary to feed it with news. So let me now turn to the commercial newspapers and their foreign correspondence. Since their first appearance in the 1880s, popular newspapers had fundamentally changed the media landscape in many European countries. The most powerful publishers headed media empires that operated internationally and published newspapers in several countries. Publishers often had business interests on more than one a continent. Lord Northcliffe from Britain was a prime example. He bought up large tracts of forest in Canada to have paper ready for his um, uh, newspapers in, uh, in, in Britain. Um, he also planned a Paris-based, uh, or, or he actually had a Paris-based European edition of his tabloid, the Daily Mail. And what few people know, he actually planned a German edition of the Daily Mail that um, did not come into action because of the First World War. We, you have the, the print runs, the dummies, if you like, uh, dated back to 1913. So there was the whole infrastructure, if you like, was ready. And that was stopped by the, uh, first, by the outbreak of the First World War which is, well, if you think back from uh, more than 100 years later, it's quite, quite something. <laughs> Another point that is interesting is that the arched British imperialist um, Lord Northcliffe 
worked closely together with an arch nationalist in Germany who was the head of the German equivalent of the Daily Mail, if you like, the Berliner Lokalanzeiger. So uh, that kind of ideological tension, if you like, did not prevent them from fruitfully cooperating uh, and um, um, establishing and working a very, well, a properly working business relationship between the Daily Mail, its Berlin correspondent, and uh, the Lokalanzeiger, who provided, which provided each other with, with, with uh, yeah, latest pieces of news. And that worked, as I said, quite uh, well. It was not, not least the representatives of these new popular papers, newspapers, that swelled the number of foreign correspondents at the turn of the century. In order to compete with the traditional party-aligned broadsheets in their foreign reporting, the commercial popular papers needed to send correspondents into all the major European capitals. Exact figures and statistics for these um, posts are hard, notoriously hard to come by, but the underlying trend is quite clear. Traditionally, only a few papers with a nationwide circulation maintained their own permanent representatives in other capitals, the Times in Berlin, for example. In the 1890s, they were joined by some of the more successful papers of the second rank, and in the last years before the outbreak of the First World War, numerous tabloids and regional newspapers sent their own representatives abroad. So you see the, the, the numbers of um, German representatives, German correspondents in, in correspondence in London going up to the 20s or 30s um, in the last like 15, uh, 10 years before uh, the First World War. And I'm now turning to my second point, the increasing nationalization of news reporting, the national bent uh, of news. Up until the end of the 19th century, it had been common practice, not least for financial reasons, for journalists to write about their own countries for foreign papers. So as a, a German in Berlin, you would write for a British paper, and as a Briton in London, you would write for a, a German paper. As late as 1891, the then Berlin correspondent of the Times, a Scot called Charles Lowe, remarked disapprovingly that most of the London papers in Berlin and Vienna were represented by German or Austrian Jews. But foreigners generally came to be seen in the years that followed as less and less suitable to fill the position of foreign correspondent. The conviction grew that the work of a foreign correspondent had a patriotic dimension so that only men of a proven patriotic disposition could be trusted to report back from foreign countries. Lowe, the, the, the Times correspondent, believed it was positively dangerous to send non-Britons abroad to represent British papers. In his memoirs, he stated that it was just as unwise, and I quote, to entrust an alien with a prominent post in our journalistic army as to appoint one to a high position in either branch of our militant services. Changes to the composition of the core of foreign correspondents were only part of a more general trend to nationalize news reporting across the European press. One of the chief causes for this were the business strategies of the commercial press. On the one hand, popular newspapers drove the internationalization of communication structure, infrastructures, but on the other hand, they came to rely more and more heavily on their patriotic appeal to their readers. Unlike the traditional broadsheets, which financed themselves through sales or donations from rich patrons and political parties, the tabloids counted on advertising revenue, which rewarded the highest possible print runs. They targeted not the traditional elites, but the lower middle classes who had gained enormously in both leather, leisure and purchasing power in the decades before the First World War. <coughs> There were, of course, exceptions, but overall, a popular paper did better to steer clear of overly close party political ties if it wanted to preserve its advertising business. And for this reason, the tabloids found it difficult to address, to address issues that were controversial domestically. National unity could be much more easily assumed in foreign and in imperial questions. 
News agencies showed similar nationalizing tendencies. During the Bismarck era, the WTB, as the leading German Telegraph Bureau, had contented itself with Europe as its sphere of influence, just as the uh, German Reich had done on the political stage. And this changed profoundly during the 1890s. Now that the German elites had, to, had decided that they too wanted to be involved in world politics, its territorial limitations and above all its dependence on Reuters increasingly irked them. In January 1898, a Berlin newspaper lamented that, I quote, England's web of cables encompasses the world, and in the center of the web lurks, like a gigantic spider, Reuters Bureau. <laughs> Britain's dominance over telegraphy and news reporting was not simply a problem for Germany. As early as 1885, France had noticed, first in its expedition to Tonkin, then again in 1893 in the conflict with Siam, and another five years later in the Fashoda incident, that its reliance on British cable networks could be potentially disastrous in a crisis, and France had protested accordingly. From at least the South African War onwards, there was an unending series of complaints about reports by Reuters allegedly twisting or even explicitly falsifying facts. And the flames were further fanned when the Russian government blocked the Siberian telegraph line, which you see uh, on the map, um, to East Asia during the Russian-Japanese War in 1904-1905, so that all of Europe's news traffic from the Far East had to run via the British cable network, so around the Asian landmass. And you can see here two examples um, from the German satirical press they actually date from the First World War, but you could find similar examples um, uh, from earlier years, uh, for example, the South African War. You see the, it's not a gigantic spider, it's an ugly uh, uh, frog with a, uh, um, a head that, that marks him as a, it as a the British capitalist. And here you see um, uh, uh, an equestrian uh, uh, statue. Uh, the pun in, is the Reuter Denkmal, the Reuter Denkmal, and the Reuter Denkmal is um, uh, devoted to Reuter as the, well, uh, the symbol of British uh, dominance in the news uh, business. As I said, it's not a German um, obsession alone. Here's a French cartoon um, with a similar uh, a message. Um, John Bull pulls the strings, um, or the cables, if you like. Accordingly, British, uh, Britain's competitors on the stage of international politics grew increasingly preoccupied with the question of how to improve their position in international communications. The development of the global cable network had initially been driven by commercial impulses, but after the turn of the 20th century, these commercial impulses were replaced by political, economic, and strategic reasons, or increasingly replaced, uh, replaced by these political, economic, and strategic reasons. You can see that if you look at the map that shows the much smaller a German cable network, starting with the transatlantic cable in 1899 and the second one in 1903, uh, both using the Azores and um, uh, the uh, efforts to, with, together with the Dutch, to build up a Far East um, a competitor to the British cable networks um, from Tsingtao um, um, uh, to the uh, Dutch possessions uh, in Southeast Asia. And uh, here you've got uh, the numbers um, of in kilometers um, of uh, the telegraph cables laid down in 1892 and 1908. The, the, the third column does not need not interest us at the moment. What you see is both the, the British dominance in that period. You see also the, the great. Um, uh, effort that had been made uh, with, the, with regard to the total numbers. The biggest expansion uh, occurs in that, uh, in that period. And you see uh, British dominance uh, is still there in 1908, but you also see 
the efforts uh, by especially by the US and even more so by Germany to uh, catch up from a much inferior uh, position. So I now come to the third part of my lecture, the interplay between nationalization and uh, transnationalization. We should not imagine that these two processes are contradictory tendencies. They were developments that existed in conjunction, and indeed they frequently overlapped and even mutually reinforced each other. In the rest of my lecture, I will try to illustrate this by looking more closely at two areas where the overlapping and the reinforcement of nationalizing and transnationalizing tendencies can be observed particularly clearly. The first example is uh, the phenomenon of the press congress, which became a firm part of the new internationalism towards the end of the 19th century. And probably the best known example is what you see here, the Imperial Press Conference in London uh, in 1909 attended by journalists from all over the British Empire who came to London to discuss issues of shared interest, from the high cost of sending telegrams and the monopoly of private cable firms to the role of the press in strengthening the cohesion of the empire. What is lesser known is that the Imperial Press Conference in London was not the only one of its kind. The media of other countries organized similar events so that representatives of European newspapers met almost annually at international press congresses. The press congress in Vienna in 1902 was attended by 240 delegates from all the big European uh, countries as well as by some uh, extra-European uh, countries, representing a total of more than 10,000 journalists, as a Russian delegate proudly remarked. The governments and heads of states of various European countries saw these events as important enough to dispatch high-level welcoming committees to greet the media representatives. In Lisbon in 1898, King Carlos and his wife Maria Amelia were in attendance. In Paris, two years later, in 1900, it was President Emile, Emile Loubet in Berlin. As in London, the foreign secretaries did, uh, did the honors, while Chancellor Bernhard von Bülow also insisted on inviting attendees to a garden party in his imperial chancellery. The topics discussed at these conferences grew out of the increased transnationalization of reporters' working conditions. They included demands for uniform tariffs for press cables, international standards for authorial and copyrights, improvements to the legal status of uh, journalistic contracts, and the establishments, uh, establishment of an international committee of publishers. The speeches that were held at these occasions stressed the importance of internationalism. There was talk of world journalists, of the cosmopolitan role of the press, of the brotherhood, uh, brotherhood and camaraderie across all borders. The editor of the Daily Telegraph described the task of the international press events as thus, thus I quote, their mission was humanity, the welfare, the culture, the progress of humanity. The sun rose on a better world every day. Human society was ever being lifted upward. On the world of the press, the sun never set. <laughs> However, closer inspection showed undertones that hinted at the virulence of nationalist modes of, modes of thought and behavior. Discussions about politics, about religion, or race were explicitly banned altogether from these conferences, uh, as the organizers apparently feared the potential explosive consequences of uh, such uh, debates. There were calls for an international journalistic tribunal of honor, patently in the hope of having an instrument with which to prosecute character, character assassination across national boundaries. At the same time, delegates passed a resolution declaring that defamatory attacks on other nations or on foreign papers militated against the honor and dignity of the press. This too apparently in reaction to current troubles. 
the tension between transnational professional cooperation on the one hand and national loyalties on the other had an impact on the work of foreign correspondents in the capitals of Europe. And this leads me to my second example, because as their numbers increased, representatives of foreign media experienced not only a corresponding growth of professional solidarity, but also they felt a need to organize collectively in organizations that would be better able to act on common concerns. So from the 1880s onwards, foreign correspondents set up their own societies following the model of Paris and Vienna, where, those, where such um, societies were set up in the early 1880s. The British uh, example was the, British, the Foreign Press Association in London that was founded in 1888. And a few years later, similar organizations were formed in Rome and in, uh, in Berlin. In Berlin, it was called the Verein Ausländische Presse uh, that was set up in 1906. The Foreign Press Association soon became important fora for networking. They initiated glamorous society events. The Foreign Press Association in London opened an office in the exclusive uh, West End, which provided access to maps, to reference books, to address books, and to, write, uh, to writing materials, so that members could use it in the, ma in the manner of a gentleman's club, more, like, uh, more or less. As a place to socialize, as well as a place to work. The association organized public lectures about political and cultural topics and several charity dinners a year, with proceeds usually going to a fund for destitute foreign artists and journalists in London. In March of 1914, the traditional spring reception of the Verein Ausländische Presse in Berlin in the fashionable Esplanade Hotel was attended by over 700 guests from the worlds of politics, diplomacy, business, and the arts. And you see that is quite a, an, uh, a successful operation that is going on here. The chief raison d'etre of the press associations was to improve professional collaboration and help correspondents to network socially. Overcoming the obstacles faced by many foreign reporters in being admitted to the press galleries of the parliaments uh, in the capital cities where they worked became a chief priority for many uh, press bodies. And uh, in brackets, uh, they were successful in most of continental Europe, first in Paris and later in, in, in Berlin and, uh, and other places. It, the most difficult bit was to get into the House of Parliament, which they didn't uh, um, succeed in here in uh, London. All of this confirms the picture of an increasingly international media landscape where the professional common ground was seen as more important than different national backgrounds. At the same time, however, the forces of a growing nationalization made themselves also felt. In order to avoid the domination of their association by members of a single nation, the Verein Ausländische Presse laid down a rule that allowed only one representative per country to sit on its board. Amongst other things, this clause was designed to counter accusations of cliquishness of the kind that had been raised at the founding of the Foreign Press Association in London, five of whose nine board members had initially been French. And you can imagine that the Germans didn't like that. Later, many German correspondents believed the Foreign Press Association was a mere plaything in the hands of its Russian president, Gabriel de Veselitsky, whom they accused of steering the association into anti-German waters. As a consequence, most German reporters decided to join a counter-organization, the Society of Foreign Journalists. You see here the, well, the tendency to multiply uh, these um, organizations have. The rift was only healed in the spring of 1911 uh, after Veselitsky had left uh, the association and the two clubs merged and a German, the London representative of Wolf's Bureau, joined the board of the FPA as a vice president. 
As late as the spring of 1914, the representative of Le Figaro as president was balanced by two German vice presidents, the treasurer was a judge, and the secretary was another Frenchman. In times of war, nationalist upsurges tended to overshadow the international character of the press associations, especially badly. In December 1899, soon after the beginning of the South African War, the FBA found it necessary to call a special conference in order to distance itself from harsh attacks made on the United Kingdom um, and from foreign caricatures, some of them quite offensive. Uh, of Queen uh, Victoria. You see here two examples from the Simplicissimus. I spare you the French ones who were even more kind of <laughs> explicit. Um, well, I, I think you see what you see. Um, pun with a, with a cat is here that the German, the hangover is a carter. And here you see a sort of a imperial hangover for, for Queen Victoria here on New Year's Eve in 1900. Uh, has something to do with the South African uh, war. While the meeting passed a resolution that declared wholesale condemnations to be dishonorable and called for urbane and tolerant relations, French, German, and Greek correspondents also <coughs> criticized the South African war as a perfidious raid planned well in advance by the British against valiant Boer freedom fighters. During the First World War, the warring nations expelled enemy correspondents, um, but the remaining representatives of allied and neutral states also experienced harassment. In London, even journalists with German-sounding names came under pressure. Anti-Semitic anti prejudices against naturalized Jews of German uh, or Austrian extradition, uh, extraction often played a part here. The Foreign Press Association adapted its statutes to reflect the new circumstances. I quote, no journalist of German, Austrian, Bulgarian, or Turkish origin um, should be eligible for the membership of the, uh, of the association even after the end of the war. And something very similar happened in uh, the other countries. So media, media transnationalism had been replaced by a reflection of the warring power blocks. The idea of an international or even transnational community of journalists had become a, had become a casualty of war. And it remained unthinkable for a long time to come. To conclude, I would like now to come back to some of the questions I asked at the beginning. Firstly, the differentiation and interconnection between the national, international, transnational, and global aspects of news coverage. So news coverage was global in its aims and ambitions, though not yet in reality in the early 20th century. Large parts of the globe remained terra incognita on the map of international news flows, with scarcely any telegraph connections and very few correspondents scattered over vast stretches of land. Journalists operated in international organizations and faced transnational challenges in their workaday life. However, this did not prevent them from seeing themselves not merely as reporters, but as a kind of semi-official representatives of their home countries. A process of increasing economic, technological, and cultural integration across national borders coexisted with continuing political and ideological antagonisms, or rather, this process did in fact reinforce national interpret interpretive, interpretative paradigms as points of orientation in an increasingly complex world of interconnected media. Secondly, the forces driving change. Change was partly driven by technological innovation. Cross-border contacts and mobility increased due to the improved methods of transport and communication. But that was not a one-way street. A recent study on the global knowledge production by news agency emphasizes the fact that the foundation of the first news agencies actually predated the invention of telegraphy. 
So the business model was there to exploit and integrate new technology as soon as it came up. And similarly, political developments and crises, especially wars, tended to accelerate institutional, organizational, and technological innovation. Thirdly, the reactions of national governments. Far from being the, help, the helpless victims of uh, globalization, nation states and national governments reasserted themselves as powerful actors in a world of increasing cross-border media cooperation. The ways in which they did this varied from country to country. In some countries, such as Germany or France, the state actually owned the telegraphic networks on which the news agencies depended. And this meant they needed official permission to send and receive telegrams, which put the government in a strong bargaining position. But even in the US, where telegraph wires were owned by private companies, Associated Press was heavily reliant on good relations with the state, not least because government provided it with exclusive news that gave AP a competitive edge over rival news agencies. Governments in other countries acted similarly, using the big news agencies as compliant transmitters of government information. Particularly in times of crisis or war, national interests trumped the commercial considerations of news agencies or the media generally. If we look beyond the First World War, it is striking that from the mid-1920s onward, states control, state control of news agencies intensified even further. And interestingly enough, that was not only true for authoritarian regimes in Italy, in Spain, Japan, or totalitarian states such as the Soviet Union or National Socialist Germany, but also for France or for the Weimar Republic. Fourthly, the impact on international relations. I think it is fair to say that the media phenomena I have described did not by themselves have a negative impact upon international relations. It would be wrong to overemphasize the confrontational aspects of international press relations. None of the products of the communications revolution necessarily by itself intensified international tensions. We have seen that the news agencies profitably worked together, and the same goes for leading papers of the commercial press like the Daily Mail and the Berliner Lokalanzeiger. The press was often just the scapegoat politicians and diplomats turned to when they had to explain how international tensions and crises had come about. In any case, the outbreak of the First World War was certainly not the culmination of ever-intensifying media tensions. In fact, whilst previous crises in great power relations, such as the two Moroccan crises in 1905 and 1911, had taken place in the glaring light of publicity and had been at least partly driven by the media, the crisis of July 1914 was, a, I would say, a typical example of secret diplomacy. Until the very end of July, British newspapers were short of information because events in the Balkans were the subject of secret diplomatic meetings. Even the British cabinet was kept in the dark for a while by Sir Edward Grey. And much the same, of course, could be said about the other countries involved. On the other hand, however, extensive media coverage helped to emotionalize and dramatize international relations. The media contributed to the development of simmering resentments which any politician who raised the temperature of national discussion could, uh, could, bring, uh, could bring to the boil. The media mirrored and reinforced diplomatic relations. The Entente Cordiale, for example, had a, a restraining effect on British press coverage of French affairs, many British newspaper correspondents in Paris did not dare to criticize France too severely for fear of damaging the Entente, whereas British correspondents in Berlin were not under the same restraint. And much the same, of course, could be said about German reporting in Austria and British affairs, respectively. So we're very careful about Austria and very outspoken, to say the least, about things in Britain. It is part of that picture, then, that the Foreign Press Association was at pains to ensure that the composition of its board should reflect the constellation of European great power politics. 
And let us now finally look at the longer time perspective of what I have discussed with you tonight. And I, well, obviously I'm more careful and speculative here now, but I try, well, I, I give you some food of thought and perhaps it's a way to start the discussion. If one takes a bird's eye view on the long 20th century from the 1880s uh, until today, it becomes quite clear that the First World War ended an era marked by a high degree of international integration in the media as well as in other sectors, of an intensity that would not be achieved again for half a century. In terms of globalization of the mass media, the 20th century, I would say, comprises, of, comprises two transformative periods separated by a deep trough. The first was in the years around 1900. The second, I would say, beginning with the revolutions in communication technology from the 1970s to the 1990s. So the advent of cable television, the explosion of TV shows, live transmission of data and images via satellites, the emergence of wireless telecommunication, and lately the global use of the internet. Only with these kinds of technological innovations and the new practices that went with them, media coverage truly became global. In both cases, however, in the late 19th and early 20th century, as well as 100 years later, the logic of the mass media drove not only internationalization and transnationalization, but also processes of nationalization. David Reynolds has reminded us of the role played by satellite television in the national penetration and standardization of the media in Asia's vast territorial states, beginning with Soviet state propaganda in the 1970s and taken up soon after after by countries like India, China, or Indonesia. Satellites both internationalized and nationalized television as a mass medium in the last third of the 20th century. And I suppose one could make a similar point with regard to the effects of the internet in our present time. It provides the quintessential transnational infrastructure, but it is still intensely interrelated with national interests and power structures. Moreover, some of today's biggest transnational media corporations, like the Murdoch Empire, strike particularly nationalist tones and notes in the way they cover news and comment on them. In this respect, the world of Lord Northcliffe is not so far away from the world of Fox News and The Sun. What is different, though, and this last, I promise, last observation I would like to share with you tonight is the importance of truth, or I should probably rather say objectivity, as a guiding principle of news coverage. In a recent study on the global news system around 1900, Volker Barth of Cologne has demonstrated, I think convincingly, how crucial the alleged objectivity of his news was for agencies such as Reuters, Avas, or VTB in the early, late 90s and early 20th century. Objectivity served to guarantee the quality of their products and maximize the number of potential customers. The claim to objectivity was at the core of their business model. It facilitated their working practices and helped to optimize the processes of production. I think it would be difficult to say the same of today's blogosphere or the ramified world of news platforms in the internet. And I think it's maybe quite apt that the Oxford Dictionary has declared post-truth to be the word of the year 2016. But this is a different story and not my topic tonight. Thank you very much for your attention.